All right, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Someone want to remind us what happened in the beginning of Acts chapter 4? Anyone remember? Okay. Yep. Amen. So when the gospel is spoken, when the truth is spoken with boldness, something is recognized. And uh, we see that recognition starting in verse 13. So that context is important to, um, to the section we're going to read now, which is verses 13 through 31. Would someone mind reading that nice and loud for us? Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 31. This is just after that truth was spoken through Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, not withholding, not watering down, not fearing men, but just being a vessel. what we're learning to do, what we've been empowered to do. We're talking about agape love and we're working right now on speaking boldly, boldly the truth, which will come as we do not prepare what to say, but just allow the Lord to speak through us. So this was the example of, of Peter doing that and uh, Let's pick it up now in verse 13. Michael, you got it? Thank you, sir. So that it is, but 
so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And beginning and being let go, they went to, to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David had said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now speak your word, by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Read 29 and 30 again, Michael. Now, Lord, look on their, look on their threats and grant to your servants that which all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Okay, pause. Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin because a miracle was performed. It was asked of them, how did this happen? And they spoke the truth. They did not withhold Going beyond this happened through Jesus, they added the Jesus that you murdered, as we talked about last week. The most offensive truth that could be spoken to those people at that time. Their response is what I believe the Lord is wanting us to see is always going to be the world's response when the truth is spoken, which was what? Let's threaten these guys to shut them up. Okay, so as we are being 
empowered from on high to speak with this kind of boldness. We need to recognize this is the response often of the world to truth, but specifically truth regarding the gospel. So the men are threatened and the men say what? Your threats mean nothing to us. We're going to speak the truth. Or specifically, we're going to speak what we've seen and we're going to speak what God tells us to speak. Right? So when they come back with their own, their own says what? This has all been promised. That nations are going to rally against the Lord. That the world is always going to push against. So, so these saints make another prayer for what? Specifically, boldness. You guys recognize that? Verses 29 and 30. They pray and ask one more time for the boldness to speak the truth. The boldness to speak his words. And the result is verse 31. Michael, read that one now. Now that is awesome, first and foremost. But I looked up that word shake and just because it kind of jumped out at me and whether or not physically the place where they were at was shaken, I think perhaps it probably was, but the, the word that they translate to get shaken there is basically a word that means to agitate to disturb or incite or to shake as though to make a rock topple so unpack that in your mind just a second they pray for boldness to speak the truth and the room in which they were in shakes as in to bring about agitation or disruption or to make rocks topple. And, and, you know, as we've read Acts in the past, we know what proceeds from here. I just think that's such a beautiful reminder of why, of why, of why the truth is so important, of why boldness with the truth is so important because boldness with the truth shakes things. Boldness with the truth shakes things that need to be shaken. Disrupts things that need to be disrupted. Agitates where there needs to be agitation. That's why it's kicked against. That's why it's resisted. And yet these were the very saints that were empowered from on high by the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost just days before this. So has there ever been a group more aligned with the Father's will at, than there was at this time? I really don't believe so. I believe to recognize this witness that we are seeing is exactly what we're being called to.
and I've been um, I've been challenged a lot over the last month personally challenged because I'm recognizing in my own life as a father and husband in my own role as pastor in my own walk as a disciple I've recognized my resistance to what I'm being called to it's been shown to me which I think is the very agitation this text speaks to the very shaking up that this text speaks to when the spirit moves with boldness whether it be directly or through the word or through someone else I think this is what it means I think this is the experience something needs to be shaken in my life and a boldness is being called forth in my life And so as we've looked at these texts to, to kind of give me the, um, the theological permission for boldness, I'm, I'm recognizing that, um, that I've been speaking about these things for a long time, way more than I've been practicing them. And you guys have probably heard me mention uh, I, he I hesitate to use revivals because I think that word is just so misused. But, but times in Scripture, in the story of, of the, the Scriptures, in which the people of God have been stirred up and return to him. Some people might call that revival. I, I don't see it that way. I, I've, I've always seen it as a, as a repentance and a return. Uh, but you guys have men, uh, heard me mention that throughout the story there have been a number of times in which this happened. And it was, and it was always because of boldness with the truth. It was always because of the courage to recognize where there is misalignment or deception or compromise or counterfeits and to call it out. And I think I've had this stirring in me that started with a recognition that it's, that it's happened in the past and it's been led in the past by men of boldness and of conviction and who feared only the Lord and not man. And I just basically feel like we're in that time right now. And I'm not talking specifically about me or this congregation, I'm just talking about the people of God in general are at one of those times where shaking is incredibly necessary. And so I'm seeing 
the prayers that we made on Pentecost and the and the um, the direction of the empowerment that we asked asked for at Pentecost this year uh, to be to walk out agape love. I'm just seeing that very differently than I was suspecting it was going to be, and it's come as we've settled on the this fourth step of of speaking the truth boldly specifically within the church being confronting sin where we see it and confronting idolatry where we see it and like I said I've, I've recognized that I've seen this is um, the way it's worked in the past and now I feel like <laughs> I feel like God's basically saying it's, it's, not, um, it's not enough anymore to say that's how it's happened in the past. It's not enough to recognize that this is how uh, restoration and um, realignment within the church happens. Now you got to do it. And you've been empowered to do it. And as these saints in this moment prayed for boldness, the recognition that that prayer was answered and that there was an immediate shaking to me is like both scary and very exciting. It's exciting because I, I see the need so clearly. I've seen the need for a long time. The need for truth to be spoken for sin to be confronted and called out for a recognition that that's ultimately an act of love so last week we, we mentioned John, 1 John chapter 4 that says God loved us first. And his love for us was fully manifest by the sending of his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That was not earned, not because of our obedience. It wasn't specifically unconditional. It was undeterred. God's love is undeterred. God's love was fully offered to us in Christ. So, so when I, when we speak about how God deals with us, once we belong to him, being almost entirely connected to how we respond to his commandments, it's super important that we remember 1 John chapter 4 and Gospel of John 3.16. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That God's love was offered, given, completely outside of how we live. But once we belong to him, how we live matters significantly. So then last week we talked about Jesus saying in John 15, I love you. I have loved you. 
I do love you. Now your job is to do what? Abide in my love. And abide in my love by doing what? Keeping the commandments. So recognizing that abiding in that love that has already been freely offered, that we could never earn, that we will never earn, abiding in that love is very much about our obedience. And because that is the case where we are disobedient, confronting and calling out that sin is an act of love. And probably the most convicting for me text regarding my own hesitation to, to play that role was in John chapter 10. And I, and I remembered it first when we, when we looked at it at study, and it's just been weighing on me since then that Jesus literally says in, in John 10 that when the wolf comes, a hireling will do what? Run. And a hireling being someone who doesn't love the sheep, but rather is just hired. Very, very convicting. That it's only a hireling that will allow a wolf to run around and terrorize the sheep, which is always only going to be sin, by the way. Right? Let's recognize what, what we're talking about. For, same with John or Matthew chapter 18, speaking about a shepherd leaving the 99 to go after the one. Right? It's always about confronting sin. Always. That is the job of the pastor. It's not to entertain. It's to protect. And there's only one thing to protect us from if we're born again, right? That is being deceived into remaining in Egypt, which is to say remaining in the flesh, which is to say remaining in bondage, which is to say remaining worshiping our old gods, our old idols, the old man. And every time the wolf comes in, that's all he's ever going to offer us. So for a shepherd to see sin going on, it's literally, according to Jesus' words, the identical thing to seeing, to having a shepherd seeing a wolf gnawing on a sheep and turning a blind eye because he doesn't want to offend the sheep. Because what's so tricky about this darn wolf is that he makes you want that sin and love that sin. So I'm very convicted in my role. And what's cool today and what I was really reminded of this morning was that God's not just speaking to me in my role, that he's speaking to all of us right now. That what the body of Christ needs, all of us must offer. And I literally got, saw this week, 
a post that just articulated my what I feel like the Spirit is speaking to me really, really well. So I just thought I'd read it rather than... It's not scripture, by the way. It's a... It's an author um, named A.W. Tozer. Some of you might recognize that name. Just an old school truth teller. And this is what he says. This is in a book called Size of the Soul. I think it was written in the 90s because he speaks about the second half of, um, of the century. And that was speaking about the, the end of the 90s. So this is, this is a handful of years ago. But he says, if Christianity is to receive a rejuvenation, it must be by other means than what are currently being used. If the church in the second half of this century is to recover from the injuries suffered in the first half, there must appear a new type of preacher. The proper ruler of the synagogue type will never do. Neither will the priestly type of man who carries out his duties, takes his pay, and asks no questions. Nor will the smooth-talking pastor type who knows how to make the Christian religion acceptable to everyone. All three of these have been tried and have been found wanting. Another type of religious leader must arise among us. He must be the, of the type of the prophets of old, a man who has seen visions of God and who has heard the voice from the throne. When he comes, and I pray God there will be not one but many, he will stand in flat contradiction to everything that our smirking and smooth civilization holds dear. He will contradict and denounce and protest in the name of God. And he will earn the hatred and opposition of large segments of the church. Such a man is likely to be lean, rugged, blunt-spoken, and a little bit angry with the world. He will love Christ and he will love the souls of men. To the point of willingness to die for the first. I'm sorry, to give glory for the first and die for the second. He will, he will fear nothing that breathes mortal breath. And I recognize as I read that, that, it, that is precisely who the Lord has shown me in the story, throughout the story, that's who God has shown me has made the difference. People like Elijah. And Samuel. And kings like Josiah. 
in Hezekiah, who basically didn't care what people thought. They just saw what God asked for, and they saw how far the people had fallen from it. And they had the courage to call it out. And I'll be honest, having that courage appeals to me. Having that boldness appeals to me right up until I got to do it. And the fear that comes from recognizing how much we love sin. So praise God that Pentecost is about being empowered with what we do not have to do what we cannot do on our own. And this is not for me alone. This is for you too, Kirby. And this is for you, Michael. And Andrew and Seth and Nick. I'm going to speak to the men a little bit today. It's my first opportunity to expose a wolf. Stop running from it. All right, let's go to Ezra. I'm sorry, um, Ezekiel chapter 14. What's a prophet? Everyone hear that? A prophet is someone who speaks for God. Miss Val, what is 98% of a prophet's message? A warning. That's really, really, really important to be reminded of. The primary message of a prophet is to speak out against sin. Whether it's hidden, whether it's a deception, or whether it's flat-out rebellion, that's what prophets did. They exposed it, and they warned what was going to happen if it continued. One of the things that's super important to recognize is when a prophet speaks, it's God speaking. It's not their opinion, it's not their interpretation, it's God speaking. 
So when a prophet speaks and a sin is exposed, we need to recognize it's Father God speaking, sharing about what's being exposed, sharing his heart. I'll, I'll remind us that, that God already shared his heart regarding sin in two passages that we studied over the last two weeks. And specifically, he said that he visits the iniquities of the fathers upon their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. Everyone remember those texts? Two very interesting places they are found. The first is in the second commandment, the commandment not to make a fake God. And the second is when he reveals himself to Moses and describes himself. In both of those, he uses the exact same language. He visits the iniquities of a father. He visits the sin of a father upon his children and his children's children to the third and fourth generation. And I got a, um, I had a question asked of me last Saturday by Callie. And um, by the way, I asked her if I could, if I could share this so, um, so it's cool. Um, if you ever want to encourage your pastor, look at the text that we study together study the text that we study together and tell me what God shows you in them that's very encouraging to me it's very encouraging to me to have someone come to me and say hey that text that we're talking about I got a question about it or this word is challenging me that's very encouraging to me so, so, she, um, so she said to me, the, the word visiting in that statement, I'm confused of, of it. I don't know what that means. I want to know what that means because it seems like there's something there, basically what she said. And this was late Saturday night. And so um, Diane and I discussed it a little bit on the drive home, and then I woke up literally... Um, it was like the minute my eyes opened up on Sunday morning in bed, my eyes opened up and literally the first thought on my mind was a visit is temporary. Um, you know, almost like that's, that's part of the definition of a visit is that it's not permanent. It's just a temporary thing. And so um, I text Callie uh, that, that, I'm, I'm not saying this is specifically from the Lord and I'm not giving you a, a Bible scripture. I'm just telling you what I thought first thing when I opened up my eyes this morning was a visit is temporary. And so then she sent uh, Diane and I a text. I think it might have been later that day or maybe it was later in the week. I can't remember, but I want to just read it to you guys because it, it, it began the beginning of of what I'm share, to share today. 
So she write, writes, good morning. I followed a rabbit trail this morning on the word visiting in quotes, not pertaining to people, but to verses that stood out to me were Leviticus 18:25 and Psalm 65, nine and 10. And by the way, that, those passages in, in Leviticus 18, he's talking about sexual immorality. And, and God basically says um, that in those places where sexual immorality is running rampant, it says, I am visiting the consequences upon the people of that land. And then in Psalm, it's actually a blessing. He talk, he's talking about righteousness and he's talking about visiting um, blessings upon the righteous with things like rain and, and so on and so forth. Um, so she said they, they both use the same Strong's word for visit. Interestingly, uh, because one type of visit is a consequence and one is more of a blessing. After reading this and lots of other verses with the same word used, I agree with the temporary aspect of visiting. It seems very clear to me that the temporary consequence is something the children have to deal with because of their father's sin. Listen to that. The kids have to deal with temporary consequences because of the father's sins. It's not a permanent thing. It's a temporary consequence. It's the visiting of the consequence based on the father's iniquity upon the children to the third and fourth generation. I also felt like the third and fourth generations was highlighted more to me this morning, which made me think of the of the part of the punishment is for the parent who hates God and does not keep his commandments for them to have to watch their children struggle with the consequences of their own choices to the third and fourth generation down would likely be that they would have to live to witness their sins affecting their kids to generations that they would actually see. makes me think of the results of things like divorce and addictions. I ended my trial with Ezekiel, my trail with Ezekiel 18, which also makes me think Ezekiel 18 is all about a father can sin and the child will, will, will have the consequences visited upon them. But if the child repents and, and um, walks in righteousness, he can be saved. And if the child, and if the father is saved, but the child decides to walk in unrighteousness, he's going to have consequences. So ultimately, we will all reap what we sow. But there is an aspect to how God deals with sin and a sinning father that is part of the punishment and the judgment that he enacts upon them, that they're going to watch their sin affect their kids. Not permanently, as a, as a visit, but they're going to watch it affect their kids and their kids' kids and their kids' kids to the third and fourth generation so that they have to witness it all. Does, not, does, not, does that not just ring true to you? I mean, it just to me, I was like, this is, I really believe this is from the Lord. And she ends it with, it's real, this is really sad. Speaking about, um, I'm sorry, um, Ezekiel 18, which makes me agree with the temporary consequences because the children will live or die eternally based on their own acceptance of Christ, regardless of the earthly consequences they may have had to live through due to the sins of their parents. It's kind of sad, but it makes me see how really loving it is to call out sin in the church. Right? So this was the encouragement to me 
that I believe the Lord was giving me through um, Callie and her, and her uh, study of the word visit to, to reach the same conclusion and reach the same permission and reach the same understanding that I feel like God is giving me that to call out sin is an act of love because of how God deals with sin in his own is so big. It's so big that it affects our kids and their kids and their kids' kids, talking to the dads. So for, for me, if I see Andrew stuck in sin and as a hireling choose to not call it out because I don't want to bother him or I don't want to offend him or I don't want him to stop hanging out with me, that's a hireling perspective. It's not love. Because what God has said about himself is that that sin that Andrew walks in is going to affect Jenna and Jenna's kids. Not permanently, but he's going to have to watch that. And maybe I'm going to have to watch that. So when a prophet speaks and speaks for God, all of this is in place. Right? Because he's speaking, it's God's voice coming through the prophet. God already knows that he's going to visit the sins of a father upon his kids and his kids' kids and their kids. God already knows that. So when a prophet speaks, it's God speaking and he's confronting sin because he loves us. Even though the message is hard. Hard to hear, hard to receive, hard to see it as love. It's what it is. All right, so let's read this prophet. Ezekiel, we're going to start with Ezekiel 14, verses 1 through 8, if someone wouldn't mind. Okay, so what God is saying there is when a prophet speaks, when he speaks through a prophet, he's confronting the idols. He will not allow those to go unnamed. He will not allow those to go unexposed. See, it's the false prophet that Jeremiah 23 speaks about that says what? You can follow the dictates of your own heart. You can walk according to the dictates of your own heart and no evil will befall you. You can despise the Lord and still have peace. 
right? It's a false prophet that allows for your idols to remain in place and says you'll be okay with that. Specifically by saying if you follow the dictates of your own heart, no evil will befall you. The Bible says the exact opposite. I always know when someone is stuck in a deception, when they, when they first and foremost come to me to, to um, justify the sin by saying, God knows my heart. That is always the first response of someone that's totally deceived. God does know our hearts. And that's why he specifically says, do not follow your heart. Follow my word. So it's only a false prophet that will allow that to, to justify a sin. I can't. I've got to call it out. Don't ever come to me and say, God knows my heart. This is why I can do this. I'm telling you, even before you tell me what this is, it's already uh, out of alignment. A prophet is going to expose the idols. The idols that do what? Cause us to sin. Because God loves us. And he corrects his own. Go ahead, Angie. Isn't that verse 8 incredibly important? To the false Jesus and the false God that the, that the church continues to preach and teach, that loves us unconditionally, and for whom how we live and the sin in our life will not affect the blessings he has for us, the protections he has for us, the faithfulness he has towards us, the health, wealth, and prosperity that he has for us, he literally just said the exact opposite. What the God of the Bible says is, if you belong to me and you have set up idols that cause you to sin and you go to the prophet and inquire, give me something good, right? This is what all the conferences are for. Come and get your blessing. Come and get your breakthrough. Come and get your anointing. Come and learn the gift. Well, to those people that would go to that prophet and say, where's my blessing? If the Lord is speaking, he would say, no, my face is against you. And I'm literally going to cause your life to be a proverb so that I'm going to be glorified regardless. Hmm? A proverb is like um, a lesson. Your life is going to be a lesson. Your life is going to de declare the truth. What is the truth? That everyone's going to reap what they sow, that God will not be mocked, 
that God is sovereign over all of creation, that how he deals with his own is based almost exclusively on how we obey him. And if you choose to set up idols and you choose to disobey me, I'm going to be very clear with you. There's going to be consequences. Men, specifically, you're going to suffer them and I'm going to visit them on your kids and make you watch. This is the God of the Bible. So now let's Yeah, now let's go to Ezekiel 20. So we know what God just said. What God just said is, when the man, the family, the congregation, or the nation is setting up idols that causes us to sin, he's going to speak through the prophet the truth. He's going to warn through the prophet of the coming judgment. And in chapter 20, we're, we're, going to, we're about to hear what that sounds like. All right, so let's, um, let's read. I know it's, it's a lot of reading. If someone wouldn't mind, maybe, maybe Kirby, thank you. I was hoping you would. Um, chapter 20, verses 1 through 24. This is a prophet speaking, so who is it? It's God. It's coming through Ezekiel's mouth, but this is God speaking. This is God calling out a sin. And why would God call out sin? Because he loves us. Because he's a good shepherd. And when a good shepherd sees the wolf devouring the sheep, he does something about it. Prophets speak clearly. They name sin. They expose it by name. This is the kind of boldness that God is calling us to in the church. Not just me, all of us. As an act of love. Go ahead, sir.
So, what did the prophet say? Okay, so we see great repetition here. Repetition is, all, repetition is always for the sake of emphasis. God's making a point. And his point is specifically um, relating to the Exodus story, which we know is a type and shadow of our story, right? And the, and the salvation from the destroyer in Egypt and the coming out from Egypt is the identical process of you and I being born again and partaking in the divine nature, right? Walking walking out discipleship and true and true witness. So, so when he says to the nation of Israel, I'm calling you out of Egypt and I'm expecting you to walk in my ways, uh, that's his expectation for them. And this is the prophets speaking to his response to them not doing that. So is this Telling of God's heart regarding obedience, absolutely. God's heart regarding his expectations of his own, absolutely. And what does their disobedience cause him to want to do? Pour out his fury. I'd go as far as saying wipe him out. And the only reason he's not that he mentions is what? His name. 
for his name, he's not going to do that. These are his people choosing to not walk in his ways. And what he wants to do is pour out his fury on them. What he's going to do is exhibit patience. Right? And, and if you mention the commandments that are broken, he gives a couple of summary statements, and then he always names one by name. Which is what? It's Sabbath. So Kirby, I want you to read uh, 12, uh, four verses, 12, 16, 20, and 24, and just listen to these specific, did the nation of Israel walk in all kinds of idolatry in the wilderness and, and even when they were in the promised land? Yes, all kinds. Prophets expose sin. Right? So when the prophet is exposing sin in this case, he's, he's doing some from sort of a summary standpoint, and then he calls out one by name. So listen to what it sounds like. Go ahead, Kirby. 12, 16, 20, and 24. Verse 16. Verse 16. Because they despised my judgments and did not walk in my statutes, but profane my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. 20. Follow my Sabbaths, and they will be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And 24. Because they have not executed my judgments, but have despised my statutes, profane my Sabbaths, and their eyes were fixed on their father's idols. So Ezekiel 20 is just one great example. And the example is that when the prophets expose sin from a from a volume standpoint, the one mentioned the most is Sabbath. And the and the one mentioned by name the most by far is Sabbath. Okay, and what does he say they're doing with the Sabbath? Profaning it. What does that mean? Okay, so the, the definition of profane means to treat with irreverence, to treat with abuse or contempt, to debase by unworthy or vulgar use. And to debase means to reduce or degrade the quality or the value of it. Okay, so the most named sin from the prophets who spoke for God to the nation of Israel throughout the entire story, the most named sin, the most called out and exposed sin in the church or in the people of God was profaning the Sabbath. Profaning means to treat with irreverence, abuse or contempt, to debase or reduce or degrade the quality of it 
by unworthy or vulgar use. So my question is, and, and then I'm, I'm done because we're going to just leave. Room for reflection. My question is, why is Sabbath such a big deal? Yes, ma'am. Excellent. Let's underline that in Exodus 32. The question is, why is Sabbath such a big deal? Was Israel committing sin? Lots. How bad of sin was Israel committing? If you just know some of the story. What's that? They're sacrificing their children to Molech. They're mixing with pagan women. They're worshiping false gods. They're oppressing widows and orphans. They're stealing everything under the sun. So much so that God's anger burned against them. His fury was being held back for his name's sake. But the single sin that's literally named the most is profaning the Sabbath. Why would that be the one most named? A Angie said, read, read verse 20 again, and then we're going to go to Exodus 32. Okay, now go to Exodus 32 with me. Exodus 32, someone please read for us. Uh, I'm sorry, Exodus 31, 12 through 18. Exodus 31, 12 through 18. Okay, so so Sabbath is a simple commandment to a very important end. And the commandment is what? We've studied this and Hopefully we remember 
What is the what is the commandment? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay? The commandment is not to have a rest day. One out of the seven days of the week. False teaching, misunderstanding of all of it. The, the, the language of the scriptures communicate perfectly what the Sabbath is. It's a day that is already holy. Our job is to remember it and keep it that. But why we do that is incredibly important to God. The why is the beginning of this passage. Andrew, read the first two verses again. What does it mean to be sanctified? Set apart. Sabbath is to be kept by the people of God as a reminder that it's God who sets us apart. Of all the commandments... Let's just talk about the, the 10. Sabbath is unique. This is just my perspective. My, my, um, as I've been wrestling with this for some time, Sabbath is unique because it deals directly with, in, in our day and age and in our culture, it deals directly with how we do with a small window of time that is our own. You recognize that? Like for most of us, uh, the seventh day is almost the only day that we can do whatever we want. And so, and so how we choose to live on the seventh day communicate something what it's supposed to communicate is that God is at the center of every aspect of our life he is the center of all of it and it is to whom that we, that it is to him that we are being separated to that's what Sabbath is supposed to be a weekly day in which our families are reminded that we are set apart unto him a sign to the entire world that we are set apart unto him. This is what Sabbath is supposed to be. A sign to the entire world that the people of God are set apart to the God of the Bible. So when that day is profaned, to profane means to... I want to use the, the exact words. To treat with irreverence abuse or contempt by reducing it with unworthy or vulgar activities. What's the day supposed to be? A sign to us and to the whole world that we are set apart unto the God of the Bible. 
So maybe we could say it this way. We can look at our Sabbaths, saints, and be shown crystal clearly who God is in our life. I'll say it another way. We can look at our Sabbaths, saints, and know crystal clearly to what we are being set apart to. Because if it's anything other than the God of the Bible, we've got a major idolatry issue. And this is nothing new under the sun. It was the single issue that the prophets throughout the entire story of the people of God have made mention of the most and called out the most. You're not set apart unto me. Well, yeah, we are. We pray before we eat. We listen to Christian music in the car. Get along with our spouse most of the time. No other commandment specifically communicates you do this one because you need to be reminded and it needs to be assigned to everyone else that you're being sanctified unto me, that I'm your God, that I'm the center of your life, that I am the, the heart and soul of your set-apartness. So to profane the Sabbath with irreverent or vulgar or unimportant anything essentially communicates that God is not our God. If we listen to what the scriptures say, if we listen to what the prophets say, Precisely. I think that's specifically why we're supposed to be bringing this up right now. Sabbath literally does both. Because the sign is intended to be to the whole unbelieving world, the people of God belong to God. What God? The God of the Bible. How do we know that? Because the God of the Bible is the creator God, and he's the one that set aside the seventh day as holy because the creation was done, and that's the God that the people of God are being sanctified to. It is the only commandment that's specific to the God of the Bible. Don't kill, false gods say that. Don't steal, false gods say that. Don't commit adultery, false gods say that. Obey your parents, false gods say that. Right? This is the one commandment that is almost entirely up to us and reflects our hearts. You see why this one's so big? A non-believer ain't going to murder. 
a non-believer isn't going to lie or steal over and over and over. No non-believers are going to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What are they going to do on that day? Whatever they want. This is the single sign that sets apart the people of God the most. And it's on a pedestal right now because of the, the craziness of our life, is it not? It's absolutely like this incredible witness opportunity. And what is most of the church doing? Breaking the commandment, which is what? Remember the Sabbath. What's most of the church do? Forget it. Because I want to do what I want to do. So I'm not even calling this out yet. That's still coming. All I'm doing is asking each of us to reflect if the, if the Sabbath is to be a sign that the people of God are set apart unto him, my challenge to each of us is to look at your Sabbath. Look at how you spend your Sabbath. Because how each of us spends our Sabbath will specifically communicate to what we are being moved to. It will specifically communicate what's the center of our home, what's the center of our life. And to the dads in particular, to the men in particular, if, if what your Sabbath demonstrates you are being set apart to is anything other than God, that's sin. And it is going to be visited upon your kids, and it already is. And I say this out of love. So reflect on it this week. Honestly. And hopefully you'll come back next week. <laughs> because great, great fruit comes in repentance. Great fruit comes in honest confession. Authentic repentance and returning to the ways of God. It's always been the pattern. And we've been empowered for it. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen.